The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Continue your educational journey online at Arizona State University. Recognized as the nation's most innovative university, ASU offers more than 300 programs online, all designed and taught by our award-winning faculty of researchers, scientists, inventors, and authors. Discover what sets us apart. Connect with an ASU enrollment advisor and explore a variety of financial aid and scholarship options, as well as how to transfer pre-existing credits. Visit asuonline.asu.edu. Hi, this is Daniel Vacanti, and you are listening to the Agile Uprising podcast. You should be listening to me um, because, because everything I say is excellent. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm Colleen Johnson, and my co-host today is Andy Clef. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Andy. We are joined today by Daniel Vacanti. Hi, everybody. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks for having me, guys. Welcome. Andy and I were laughing before Daniel joined us. We're both big fans of your work, so we're really excited to have you on the podcast with us today. So wait, so wait, you, you, sorry, you were laughing because you were talking about my work. Is that, is that what you were just no. saying? No, <laughs> we were giving each other a hard time about being fanboy, fangirl. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel brings more than 20 years of focus on lean and agile practices and is the author of the Actionable Agile Metrics for Predictability, which is hands down probably the book I recommend the most in my coaching and, and training. So um, I'm excited to, to talk through some of these topics with you tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. It's, this is um, long overdue for, uh, for this conversation. So happy to do it. Love the book as well and, and promote it when every chance I get. It's a it's an easy read and it's also enriching this the next time you go through it there's there's lots of layers of understanding. Yeah, well, yeah, well thanks very much. I mean that's um when we need to talk we need to talk about my new book too. So maybe at, at the appropriate time we can talk about that one as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, let's start let's start from the beginning here. You were really instrumental in founding what we know of now as the Kanban method for software development. Can you tell us a little bit about how that journey began? So I've been playing around with with um, agile methods in one form or another since about the year year two thousand. The method I, I used uh, early on was called feature driven development. I don't know how many people really know about feature driven development, but that's um, that's that's what really got me started down the the agile path. Um, and it was in two thousand six that I got a call to go out to um, a company called Corbis. Anybody who knows the the history of Kanban knows knows the company Corbis. And I I arrived at Corbis. Um, in 2007, by the time I got there, they had already um, Kanban was was pretty well already established as part of their um, maintenance and enhancements process, um, and I was brought in to um, to build out a, a whole new uh, engineering I shouldn't say a new engineering team, but to, I guess to augment their existing engineering team and transfer all of the the Kanban practices that they had been doing for maintenance project uh, for maintenance work over to project work. Um, so I led the world's first 
project implementation of Kanban. Um, and so I don't know, I don't know if we're ever going to get into this, but it's, it's one, it's honestly one of the myths that really drives me nuts about Kanban when people come along and they say, well, Kanban is just for, for maintenance and enhancement work. Well, it's not true. I mean, honestly, I would bet 90%, 95% of my experience in applying Kanban has all, has been all about um, applying it to project work. So, so yeah, I, I led the world's first project implementation of Kanban and have been, been focusing on that pretty much ever since. What was the scale of that project in terms of time, heartbeats? So when I joined Corvus Engineering, I think they had somewhere around 10 or 12 people working on that, on that, maintenance, um, on that maintenance team. We came in and we were doing a, um, an SAP implementation and um, we were talking earlier about drinking. Um, we, we definitely need some alcohol to talk about SAP implementations. I'm sure you guys have been involved in, in those. But uh, um, it was my job to scale that, that team from about 10 people to, I think at our max, we were around 60 or so. Um, and um, the project lasted for 18 months, two years or something like that. They threw in, just for good measure, they threw in a website redesign on top of the, the SAP implementation too. So there was all kinds of goodness going on there. Learned a, learned a lot about that. But I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm babbling a little bit. No, that, that, that's it. So, so, you know, you scaled from 10 to 60. It was a year and a half and it was a project and you did the whole thing Kanban. Exactly. And and so at that point, how are you using Kanban and some of the and the and the forecasting methods that you had come up with? Yeah, not not very well. <laughs> so V one um, always stinks, doesn't it? <laughs> so it's it's I'm actually so this is this is I'm I'm really glad that you guys are are asking this question these questions and I'm I'm, I'm really happy um, uh, about this timing because it's one thing that I've been thinking about if you guys will allow me to digress for a little bit it's it's one thing that I've I've been thinking about um, for the past couple of months is that I think the 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 kanban method in general has become has become bloated and overly complicated and trying to do all things for all people and I'm constantly reminded of my experience on that that initial project where we didn't have a lot of the understanding that we do now about certain things. We didn't have a lot of the tooling. We didn't have a lot of this stuff. And I think, you know, it's, it's the good old days thing, right? Um, but I think I, I, I think there's a need to kind of return to that more more simplistic approach where we had a very very kind of bare bones way of of thinking about 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 Kanban and flow. And if you guys would like me to, I can, I can go into that, um, yeah, you know, a, a little bit, but, but it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's very, very different. I think I got in trouble uh, a couple months ago. I, I said in a tweet that the Kanban method had been perverted by some people. And a lot of people took exception to the, to the word perverted. And I don't know, I, I kind of, I kind of stand by that statement because I really do believe that, that the method itself has, has been <laughs> perverted because I think it's, 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 it's a much easier thing uh, than most people think. So, I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? Should I, should I spend a little bit of time well, let's, talking let's, about that or not? Or? Let's get you into more trouble. So what have you seen? <laughs> let's. So, so where's the perversion head it come in? Has, has, you know, so <laughs> Some of the things that we've seen in other methodologies, the certifications roll in, the, you know, do it my way or you're wrong comes yeah, in. Yeah. So where's the perver the perversion aspects that, that you yes. saw that you were referring to? 
Yeah. So, so uh, let me let me <laughs> let me back up first before I get, before I get into too much trouble. Um, I, w- I want to say anybody out there who's doing Kanban right now and is using some of the techniques that are being being spoken about right now, if if, if whatever you're doing right now is working for you, that that, that that's great. Um, if you're struggling with maybe some of the guidance out there, um, then then maybe there's some some things in this podcast. I'm hoping uh, that that can help you out. So. Um, let's, 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 let's start with the first, the first kind of big landmine. The, there, there's something called the Kanban condensed guide that that's out there. That's, that's not so condensed. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. I, I think it's over 90 pages. Um, yeah, it is, say, it's not say small. Say what you will about, um, about Scrum and the Scrum guide and things like that, but at least they got their message across in, I think, under 15 pages. Um, so the Kanban condensed guide is, is, is 90 things. And like I said, I think, I think where they get into trouble is they're, they're trying to be all things to all people. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's a classic thing where your strengths are your weaknesses, right? And um, the, the great strength of Kanban is that it can be applied to any context. Well, the problem with that, though, is now you have to be fairly fairly generic and fairly abstract in terms of how you talk about some of these, these concepts in order to make it applicable to, um, to all, to, to all situations. So, uh, so I think that's the first thing. I mean, if you, if you read that, if you read that Kanban guide, the Kanban condensed guide, um, it essentially reads like, well, everything good that you can think of doing, you should do. And everything bad that you think you should not be doing, you shouldn't do. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's very helpful in terms of, 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 um, you know, a, a practical application of knowledge in my humble opinion. Yeah. If, if, if I can say in my early agile journey, uh, I was drawn to Kanban for the simplicity and the lack of you must do the following type of uh, yeah. imposition of frameworks. You know, estimating was optional. Roles were optional. Yep. As little as possible that gave you a, a, a wee bit of predictability was sufficient. And then you just play with it. So yeah, um, I, I can't see how you'd it, fill 90 pages with that <laughs> level of simplicity. <laughs> Yeah, I know. So, I mean, if I, so if I can, I mean, I kind of, I'm, I'm always trying to think about how do I, how do I distill Kanban down to its, to it, to its essence? And I think, um, this is still, um, for, forgive the pun, but this is still kind of a work in progress, but, but as far as I'm, uh, I see what you did there. As far, as far as I'm concerned, really that the essence of Kanban is, um, if you, you know, if, uh, to, to be successful with Kanban, you essentially need to do really one thing, as far as I'm concerned, one thing, and that is pay attention to the age of items in progress. Now, that's actually a fairly dense statement. If you think about it, we could probably spend easily spend the rest of the hour unpacking that statement. But really, all you do, if all you need to do to be successful with Kanban is pay attention to the age of items in progress. Because when I think about when I think about those early Corbis days, that's really what we did. And everything else, um, the visualization, the metrics, the whatever, were really in support of that one concept of, you know, what, what is the age of items in progress and how can we el- eliminate unnecessary delay in order to get these items delivered to our customers? 
I really like the simplicity of that. And, you know, I think this ties back to what you were just saying, too. I, I hear that same feedback that Kanban is doesn't work for projects. Can you elaborate a little bit on what, how do you coach teams that want to apply Kanban for project-based work in overcoming that obstacle or that, um, I guess, misconception that there's nothing to push great, against? Great, great question. Andy, not that you haven't been asking good questions, but that's 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 a particularly good question. Um, this, uh, so if, if, we, if we think about that, you know, what I just said is, if you pay attention to the, the age of, of items in, in progress, applying that to a project context means that, um, well, I guess even really a maintenance context as well, but just looking at the age of items in progress, if you're coming at it from that perspective, what you really need is an objective measure of what does it mean for something to have been in progress for too long? How do we know if something is, is old or not, too old or not? How do we know if something is flowing or not? Um, and that's really where where the metrics come in. And those early days, and this is something, this is a concept that's really not talked about too much, I think, in the regular Kanban world. But there's always, from the very beginning, there's been this concept of, and it's terrible language. You guys will forgive the language. I personally hate it. I try to use different language in, in, my, in my books. But there's something called um, an SLA, a service level agreement. Yeah that everything that flows through your process, every item that's flowing through your process is constantly evaluated against, against this SLA. And that's where the, the commitment, the small C commitment comes in is it's the team's responsibility to get these items to flow through the process within that agreed SLA. And if they're not able to, they, they need to take action. Or as soon as they know that they're not, that this thing looks different, they, they need to take action. And that SLA is relevant, whether you're talking about projects or maintenance work or, or whatever, because in a project world, you've got a whole backlog of, of items, of things that you want to get done. It's not, Kanban is not just, well, let's pull stuff in and it takes as long as it takes. That's, that's exactly not the case. That is completely opposite of the case. Kanban gives you a very specific set of, of strategies that enables you to get through that backlog of items as efficiently, effectively, and predictably as possible. So like I said, whether you're talking about a project context or, context or a maintenance context, these strategies will will work. What do you like instead of SLA? Um, service service level expectation. Mm. Um, service level agreement sounds too much like a contract with penalties and you know things like that. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about there is an expected level of um, of service for the items that are, are flowing through our process. So yeah, SLE I think is I think is a little bit better better language. And and I don't know if you guys know Yuval Yarrett. I have to give him a, a shout out. He's the one, he he doesn't he doesn't remember this, but he's the one who actually gave me that language. If you go and ask Yuval, he'll say, no, I never said that. But he did. So Yuval, I'm calling you out on national television here. Um, so it is, it is actually Yuval's, Yuval's language. You touch on flow at, at maybe tangentially as the age of items in progress. And I think that's such a powerful piece of this methodology is the idea is you start something and you keep it moving until it's done. And, and the age of the item in progress highlights when you have some drag in your system and, and, you, and the whip limits force you not to abandon something that you've started, but you get it done. Yeah, exactly. That's an elegant as simplicity, but hugely powerful. Yeah. So, so you, yeah, you're, you're starting to un unpack that, that statement, you know, which is great. So like I said, if you, if you say that the common is really all about paying attention to the age of items in progress, what you're, what, you know, what you really have to think about, okay, well, what, 
what, what, what is age? You know, what, you know, you have to start thinking about, well, obviously this means that there is a, a clearly defined point at which something has started and a clearly defined point at which something has, has completed, right? And anything that's past that started date is accruing age and everything that's past that completed date is not. And so once you get to that concept, now it's all about, well, what are some of the things that contribute to age? What, you know, what, 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 what makes items age more than maybe other items? And you hit on it, Andy, where you're talking about, well, too much work in progress is the, the number one culprit in terms of things taking too long to get done is you're working on too many other things at the same time. So now we can start introducing things like work in progress limits. Once we have work in progress limits, you know, we, we might want to have some, some other indications of why is stuff taking too long. And that's really where the power of the visualization comes in. You know, the, the, the Kanban board itself, we can see work piling up in certain areas or or being starved in certain areas, you know, and that'll give us an idea of why work is aging, right? So, I mean, like I said, as, as you start unpacking that statement, I think the rest of, of Kanban kind of, again, forgive the pun, kind of flows from that. I was scanning again today some sections of your book, uh, looking at Little's Law, and I think I was looking at maybe some Wikipedia articles on Little's Law. It never occurred to me how maybe fractal is the right word or the wrong word, how fractal it is. You take any process and you look at Little's Law, and then you can look at subcomponents or subprocesses and look at Little's Law. How, how far do you break it down when you're looking at the flow of work on a Kanban board? Well, so typically, we're, we, typically we're talking about the, item, the items in progress. Each item in progress should represent an individual unit of customer value. However, you're defining that value, you know, it's a user story, it could be at the user story level, it could be at the epic level, it, it could be at, at, you know, some some other level, but it, it's whatever that smallest indivisible unit of customer value that when it is actually delivered to the customer, either either provides direct value or allows for the customer to provide feedback in terms of, you know, are we directionally correct? That's usually the most at the most granular, that's usually the most granular. I, I mean, I don't think if, if the question is, you know, maybe do you go down to like, say, the task level or something like that? Yeah. You, 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 I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't visualize tasks on your board. But from a flow perspective, I think flow is really all about the movement of customer value through your process. So that's really where you're going to want, want to focus on. So if that but 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 to your point, you can go, you know, up, up the stack as well. So not you don't have to necessarily look at stories. You can look at, at features or epics or, you know, projects or, you know, whatever. Um, that's the, now we're getting into like portfolio Kanban type things. Dan, when I, one of the things I have the hardest time working through when I'm coaching or training teams that are new to Kanban is talking about why it's okay to use averages in these equations. Can you help explain for all of us why this works itself out? Uh, Little's Law specifically? Yeah, Little's Law and then in forecasting as well. So you said why, why averages are okay? Is that what you said? Well, yeah. And I want to follow that up with talking about the size of the work items because I think that starts to go hand in hand. And it's, it's, a, it's one of the places I find myself getting stuck in coaching and training is that people can't, you know, can't understand how can you have one system where they're tasks and maybe stories and help desk tickets and different sized items moving through the same system counting against the same whip when you're using things like cycle time to forecast honestly those are those are probably three questions in one so so <laughs> let me let me let me start with the first statement we'll you let know, you it, pick which it, one you want to answer is, first. is it okay to use averages especially when it comes to forecasting actually the answer to that is is no but I want to I want to come back to that I want to come back to that because I think the maybe potentially the more important thing that you're asking is 
um, how can we have this, how, how can a, a process handle disparately sized items, whatever that means, um, and still achieve a level of, of predictability, you know, that we're looking for, you know, how can, how can we have some items that take, you know, one or two days and some items that take, you know, 13 or 14 days or, you know, even longer. And, you know, how, how, how can, how can a system that has that much variability, uh, you know, re really be predictable? And um, actually, I actually have a talk on this that I give. Um, it's, it's called, <laughs> we talked about editing later. This might be something you edit out later. I don't know. Um, the, the talk that I, I, I do is called Why Size Doesn't Matter. Um, <laughs> so, so basically, if we Google that one, Dan, uh, we wouldn't be careful what we put in the show notes. Well, well, my, my, my name will be at the top of the list, of course. Um, I get surprisingly a lot of guys that show up to those to those talks. But, um, yeah, but, but the point is, a lot of people do get, I think, Colleen, to your point, a lot of people do get hung up on this idea that, that Kanban or Flow or Little's Law or whatever demands that all items that flow through your process be either of exactly the same size, or I think to kind of what you were getting at earlier, Colleen, is that maybe they average out to be all the same size. Um, and that's not, that's not necessarily true. And I don't know, I don't know how deep to, to go into this. I don't know how much, how much you guys want me to, to explore that or not, but I don't know if you can maybe just take it as a leap of faith that, you don't necessarily need all of your items to be of exactly the same size or even average out to be the same size. What you really do care about is that over time, the way that you're breaking your stories down or the way that you're breaking your work down does not change dramatically over time. I mean, if you have some stories going through your process that take like half a day and some stories that are going through your process that take two years, well, obviously you've got a problem there, but my guess is there's a bigger problem than, than, than story breakdown or, or item breakdown. All right, so just trust it. Trust Little's law; it will work. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Do you want, I mean, I don't know how much? How much you want me to? Yeah, how much you want me to spend? To, to spend let's on that? Let's unpack it. So, so Little's law. It, you know, you've you got in your book um, half a dozen different variations. All the equations, you know, three sides of the same coin. Yeah. Sooner or later, what are some of the common mistakes? So let, yeah. let's assume we yeah. trust it, and we're going to use it as, as a law. What are some common mistakes that? tell people to be aware of when when attempting to use it to help guide them towards a more predictable and stable system. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, for the uninitiated, for people who, who haven't heard of Little's Law or, or maybe haven't seen it or whatever, there are, there are essentially three basic metrics of flow that I coach teams to pay attention to when they're starting with this stuff. Um, one of those things is work in progress, and work in progress is defined as anything that has started but has not finished. One thing is called cycle time. I'm going to use the word cycle time. You can use lead time or flow time or whatever you want, but I use the word cycle time. Cycle time is the measure of total elapsed time between when an item starts and when an item finishes. And the third, the third metric is throughput. And throughput is a measure of, is the, the count of the total number of items that are finishing Per unit of time. So we got you know two items done per day, five items done per week, 30 items done per month. Those are all measures of, of throughput. Well, Little's Law is equa an equation that says under certain circumstances, under certain some, uh, assumptions, those three metrics, those three basic metrics of flow are related by a very, very specific equation. And it says, that equation says that average cycle time for the items that are flowing through your process, average cycle time equals average work in progress divided by average throughput. Now, the biggest misconception of Little's Law, as far as I am concerned, is a lot of people think 
that Little's Law is for forecasting. Oh, look, look, so I, if, I know, if I know work in progress and I know throughput, then I can figure out average cycle time. Or if I know any two of those three things, then I can, I can figure out the, the, the third one. And I can forecast in the future when my project will be done and when a given item will be done or anything like that. I think the biggest myth around Little's Law is that you can use it for forecasting. And if you go and read Little, he's very, very, very specific about this. He's, and, and Little says, this law is not for forecasting. It's for looking backward you know, backward over time over items that have finished to get a better understanding of how our, our process has performed in the past. And it will give us an insight in terms of what changes we can make in order to make the process perform better in the future. Now, we can't necessarily use Little's Law to predict how those changes are going to affect the future, but it's going to give us some insight in terms of, of looking. So my, my, my first kind of biggest myth with Little's Law is you can't really use it for, for forecasting. And this can be to me, kind of the second biggest thing that, that I go after is forget about the quantitative side of Little's Law. Because people see an equation, they immediately want to start plugging numbers into it. And, and my big thing is forget about that quantitative stuff. To me, Little's Law is, out about, is all about understanding the qualitative relationship between these three metrics. Because what it's saying is, again, under certain circumstances, all other things being equal, it's, it's a mathematical proof that the more things that you work on on any given time, the longer each of those things are going to take. I mean, by, by definition, it's mathematical fact that that's going to happen. You work on more stuff, they're going to take longer on average, right? Again, under certain cir circumstances. And to me, that's the power of Little's Law is understanding that relationship. That if you try to increase throughput, but your work in progress increases faster than your throughput does you're actually making things worse. Things are actually going to take longer um, than, than shorter. So I've done a lot of hand-waving there. I hope that's, I hope that's okay. But isn't there an element of forecasting, though, in that? There, there's, there's the beginning to be a kernel of if you increase this without decreasing that, then the future is going to look like this. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. From a qualitative perspective, we can say the future is going to look like this. What we can't do is, is say that, well, if I increase work in progress from three to four, and my throughput increases from you know six six items per day to seven items per day, then my cycle time is going to look like this. That's what you can't do with Little's Law. But qualitatively, you can say, yeah, you know what? I can use work in progress as a lever to pull. If, if my cycle time doesn't look the way that I like it to, I can use work in progress as a lever to pull to maybe um, affect what that is. Now, if you want to know what that cycle time is going to look, like, look at, you have to get into different analytics. Um, and that's where, shameless plug, that's where my book comes in, in terms of the different analytics that you really need to look at, in terms of making forecasts around individual items getting done, as well as multiple items getting done. Got it. One of the, one of the things I love in your book is... Um, how little data you need to be able to get started. Um, what do you recommend for teams that are new in a, kind of that first step in capturing and leveraging their data for predictability? Yeah, so the, the, the first thing, if we get back to that, that whole SLA thing or SLE thing, if you absolutely have no data, and honestly, most teams that I work with, they usually have data somewhere. It's just a matter of finding it and getting it, right? So, I mean, usually there, there's data somewhere. But if this truly is a brand new team that has no data whatsoever, from a, from a service level expectation perspective, my preferred method is to just put a stake in the ground and just say, you know what, that we, we, we think our, SL, my, our service, level, service level expectation should be this. And then really just start working stuff through the process and start getting that data as quickly as possible. Because as, as you mentioned, 
you know, after after several items, you'll have a pretty good idea of whether you're you're on the mark of that that service level expectation or not. And then it really just becomes a matter of adjusting that service level expectation up or down based on the data that you're getting off um, off of your process. And then it really becomes the point of the retrospectives to talk about, okay, yeah, this service level expectation isn't quite where we, we want it to be. What are some things that we can do uh, to make our process perform better, quote unquote, better? Yeah, I love that part of Kanban systems. I think it really hits to the heart of the concept of self-managing teams and agile. Um, and kind of going back to what you were saying with Little's Law, you know, that's the lever that your your team has to pull to affect performance. Um, and, and I think understanding that part of Little's Law can really help the team. You know, you always get that question, um, why should we follow whip limits? Or we always break our whip limits. What should we do about it? I always tell them, I'm not going to make you do anything about it. I want you to understand what it's doing yeah, to your exactly. output. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's what, what Little's Law is essentially telling us, and you, you guys... Um, you guys are probably familiar with this. I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite exercises to do in my Kanban trainings. It's, it's a, a penny flow game, you know, where we hand teams uh, pennies out to, to flip and to pass around and, and to flip. And the, the basic premise of this game is that, you know, if you have, because each team is handed 20 pennies. And the basic premise of the game is if you have 20 pennies to get flipped and, and get through your process, the absolute worst strategy by far, by far, is to start all 20 of those things all at the same time. It's the worst by far. The much better strategy is to understand what is the true capacity of your process in terms of starting, in terms of starting pennies, and only do that. You know, in a lot of cases, it's really starting one penny at a time. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but it can be. And you know, a lot of people are are, um, are thrown by that because we're taught growing up, we're taught um, a couple of um, a couple of really dangerous, I think, um, lessons. One is that. The sooner you start on something, the sooner you'll finish it, which is which is one of the biggest fallacies out there, right? Usually, the sooner you start something, the longer it's going to take. That's that's Little's law, right? Um, and then the, the 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 second thing is that the more you work on, the more you'll get done, right? That's kind of the kind of the same thing, but um, that that's that's equally dangerous. So dispelling those two myths is at the heart of, of why Kanban exists. Yeah, we'll, we'll get some links to that game and uh, a, a few videos on why size doesn't matter in the show notes. Um, <laughs> so some of this leads me down the path of why an expedite swim lane in your Kanban board is such an evil thing. And I still have a hard time explaining to many of our stakeholders why pulling something in, quote, fast track just this one thing screws the whole system up. Can you help us unpack that a little bit? Give me a little more ammo. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try my best. Uh, so um, I, again, if we're, if, we're, if we're talking about maximizing predictability, and usually when, when, um, some, when teams introduce an expedite lane, that's one of the reasons why they're trying, that's one of the things that they're trying to do is they're trying to maximize predictability. They're trying to say, hey, these things are so important that we want to be able to pull them in whenever we want to. And we want to be able, we want these things to take priority over everything else and get them through the process as fast as, as, as possible. Well, the problem with that um, is whenever you have an expedite lane and you have an everything else um, that, that's on your board. Typically speaking, if you have policies around, well, we can pull these items in and they can violate work in progress limits. And um, because we can violate work in progress limits, we can steal resources from other stuff that's going on and have it go work on that. Well, what happens is, 
is yeah, the stuff that's going through that expedite lane um, goes through very, very quickly. But the question you have to ask yourself is, now all that all, all the effort and all the resources that we're putting on that one item or those, those couple of items in the expedite lane, what's happening to all the other work that we've already started? Right? And the answer to that is, well, that stuff is just sitting there and it's aging. And if we get back to the original, the original statement I said um, to start the podcast is it's really all about paying attention to the age of items in progress. What happens is whenever you have an expedite lane, you have some stuff that moves through the process very, very predictably predictably, very, very fast, very predictably, but you have a whole bunch of other stuff that just kind of sits there and takes forever to get done. And that stuff, the more expedites you have, the stuff that's not being worked on just sits there in ages and ages and ages and ages to the point where we have no predictability on, on that stuff. So usually a much better strategy, rather than having an expedite lane, a much better strategy is to, to tweak your process to get it such that all items are flowing through your process as quickly as possible. You've, you've optimized your process for flow so that all items are flowing through as quickly as possible. You couldn't expedite anything even if, even if you wanted to. And then and at that case, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy I work with right now. Um, his name is Steve Reed at, at Ultimate Software. You know, he's a big proponent of this at Ultimate Software. His idea is whenever an item comes up that is truly an expedite, because I've tweaked my process and because I've got it as predictable as I can, when these so-called expedites come up, he says, I know with a reasonable confidence that there's something in my process that is going to probably finish soon, like within the next couple hours or certainly, certain, certainly today. So a much better strategy is instead of pulling in that expedite right away and putting people on that, let's finish something that we already have started because I know I have the predictability to know that something's going to finish. Let's get that thing finished. And then when those people free up, we can put those on this, this new thing and pull it into the process and work it through the same way. Does that, does that make sense? It does. You put it at the top of the stack and you pull it next rather than introduce its own swim lane. Yeah. So, um, I mean, because really what happens is whenever you introduce an expedite lane, what really happens is you have your expedite lane becomes very, very predictable and all of your other stuff becomes really, really unpredictable. Once your product owner or your business owners or whatever people see that, their natural inclination is then to say, oh, well, you know, I know that if I give them this expedite, they get it done in three days. But if I give them something that's not an expedite, it takes them three months well, you know, guess what? Everything's an expedite at that point. Exactly. That's that's the boat many of us are in. I don't know. I hope I, I hope that helps. That's another shameless plug. I think it's chapter thirteen of the Actionable Agile Metrics book that gets into that. There's um, there's a whole bunch of, of models and simulations that I run through that that kind of prove why, from a from a predictability perspective, um, expedite lanes are dangerous. Very dangerous. I I, I think for me the simplicity of look at the age of all the other things and, and, and watch them get older and gray and decrepit and then tell me that they're no longer important. I'll just kill them. We won't do that. Yeah. And we'll just do the exactly. expedite things. And suddenly, you know, we'll just have, we'll be back to a, a standard level of expectation. Exactly. That's exactly it. Do you have a favorite method for highlighting aging work on a board or in a system? Yeah, yeah, I do. So this is this is another shameless plug. Uh, so there's um, as as part of the a part of the book, or even I guess before we launched the book, uh, my my company Actionable Agile um, has a tool called Actionable Agile Analytics. Um, and as um, and if you guys go to actionableagile.com, you can you can see the tool. But as part of that tool, we have something that's called a work in progress aging chart. 
and the, the story of how this chart came up, came about is is, is kind of interesting, maybe not relevant for here, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, but it, it turns out that this work in progress aging chart, for the people who use actionable agile analytics, that aging chart is by far and away the most used chart in, in all of analytics, as, as it should be. Um, people are looking at it every day during their standups, and it becomes... The, between the board and this aging chart, those become the kind of the two central focusing factors of um, of your daily that, that that people pay attention to. What triggers the aging clock? What the arrivals? Yeah, exactly. So that's the f- fundamental. Yeah, now, now we're now we're getting to foundational stuff, right? So fundamental to all of this stuff working, any of this stuff working is, as I mentioned before. When, when you're setting up your process or when you're operating your process, you have to have, you have to have a clearly defined point at which the team agrees work has started. You know, whatever that point is on your process, it could be a ready column, it could be the first work in progress limited column, whatever it is, whatever that, that you'd have to have a clearly defined point at which we consider work to have started. And any items that cross that line that's when the that's when the aging clock starts, and that's when the SLA kicks in, and that's when when all of this stuff happens. And likewise, you have to have a clearly defined point at which stuff is done, because once stuff crosses that done line, obviously we stop the aging clock. And once an item flows from started to done, that total measure of elapsed time between those two points now becomes cycle time. When it's in progress, it's aging. When it finishes, it's it's cycle time. Like I said, understanding that, just having that clearly defined start point, clearly defined end point. That's, that's the fundamental thing that you have to do. If you don't have that, that's where you need to start. Um, and then once you have that, everything else comes from, from, from those definitions. Do we not care about age of stuff bef- in the backlog that the team hasn't totally accepted? So somebody says, this is a good idea. We should do this. Maybe there's preliminary design work or um, business case done, but it's sitting there in the stakeholder's mind, aging in the mm-hmm, backlog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you, you might, you might, you might have, um, so when I was talking about this start point and end point, you might have several of those defined, you know, so you might have, you know, hey, what is our cycle time through development? Okay, okay, what is the cycle time from when the customer requests something to when we're done coding it? Or what is the cycle time between when a customer requests someone, something and when it's actually into production, right? You ha- might have several different cycle times that you're paying attention to, but that's that's the whole thing is as you change that definition of when something started and when something finishes, you're going to get a whole different set of data um, and a whole different set of information that you're going to want to look at that is derivative uh, from, from that data. So you may very well care. You know, maybe in our context, we care about when a customer requests something and it, and it goes into the backlog. Well, if that's what you care about, then measure it. Absolutely. But now now our started point is when when the item goes into the backlog. Do you see what I'm saying? That's Yeah, that, that, that clarifies a lot for me. So different cycle times because it's a, it's a different process. Yep. But, but And to your point earlier, Andy, um, Little's Law will still apply between those two points, right. or however you define those two points. And, and whatever, whatever analytics tool that you use should have you know, a really, really good flexibility around how to define that start and end point. Dan, you talked a little bit about with the service level agreement, you know, the concept of of changing that over time and using retrospectives to look at the data and make decisions as a team. It's one of the things I, I, I feel like a lot of teams will set their whip limits and they it's like the law, <laughs> never change them. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's your approach around, you know, evolving Kanban systems and, and how frequently you should make t- small changes to the system to see how 
you can improve your throughput or or cycle time. Yeah. So um, a, a, a couple things, and and this is this is maybe where um, where I um, uh, differ from from maybe kind of more per, the prevailing quote unquote Kanban wisdom out there. But um, this is I've had many many conversations with with our good friend Frank Vega. I think you guys both know know Frank uh, about this. When um, when initially setting work in progress limits, I'm actually a big fan of of not necessarily doing Kanban style work in progress limits. And what I mean by that is having work in progress limits set on every single column, but rather maybe starting kind of you know a little bit easier and having a global work in progress limit, saying that we as a team only want to work on X number of things at a time. You know wherever they are, wherever they are. We only want to say, hey, to have ten things on our board, um, you know, and just and just start there. To me, that that's a great place to start, because now the conversations around how is that how is that work in progress limit affecting us, and should we change it, are a lot easier. When you get a little bit more sophisticated, you might say things like, well, it looks like we have a lot of work piling up between development and test. You know, we might have you know we might have a done call a dev done column, and it looks like there's a lot of work piling up right there in dev done. Well, at that case, maybe maybe it's reasonable to say, okay, you know, we're going to set an explicit work in progress on work in progress limit on on that column, to say, you know, we only want to have five things in there, you know, five five things queuing up ready for test, and maybe over time ratchet that down, say from five to three or or, or three to two, um, but that's that's really my preferred method for for introducing these these work in progress limits. Don't necessarily feel like you have to get every single column limited and get that that number exactly right. To me, and I can't believe we're what 50 minutes into the po- the podcast and I haven't even said this. Um, to me Kanban is really all about getting you to ask the right questions sooner. That's really all it's about. And and a work in progress limit is is an aid to that. Whenever you violate that work in progress limit, it's not that you should never violate your work in progress limit. It's more like when you do violate the work in progress limit, that should prompt a conversation. Why did we do it? What happened here? And what do we need to do to make sure or to, to help ensure that that doesn't happen again? Or or the limits wrong. Absolutely, yes. So you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you got a new book in, in, in the works. Tell us more about that, Dan. Yeah, so the, the new book is called, um, appropriately, uh, When Will It Be Done? Um, so the actual Agile Metrics for Predictability book was really more about Defining the metrics and analytics, uh, you know, under, understanding the specific metrics and analytics around predictability. The When Will It Be Done book kind of kind of builds on the the metrics book's work and goes into much more detail around how to use those metrics and those analytics uh, to get much uh, better, get much more accurate forecasts. Um, I guess really two things: much more accurate forecasts as well as much better, um, much sooner information in terms of how to improve your overall process. How far along is the book? Um, it's pretty much done. So if you if you go to LeanPub, um, it's out on LeanPub right now. The meat of the book is done. I still have a couple of case studies that I'm polishing um, that I will that I will add in the coming weeks. Um, and then once all that is done, um, I'll try and get a, a version out on Amazon as as soon as possible right after that. But but the the, the majority of the book, you know, probably ninety percent of the book is done and is available for purchase out on uh, on leanpub.com. Great. We'll we'll grab the URL, put it in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you. 
Is this a book that you think would um, reach uh, managers and, and leadership of engineering teams? Because I feel like that's one of the, the groups that can be the hardest to convince or the hardest to sell with some of these approaches. I, I hope so. Um, I hope so. But the, the problem is, as with all of this, it's such a fundamental mindset shift in terms of thinking about these problems. So like the, the, the When Will It Be Done book goes into a lot of detail around probabilistic thinking. And I think a lot of people are scared off by probabilistic thinking. To be honest, I'm kind of scared by probabilistic thinking. I don't, I'm not even sure I know what probabilistic thinking is. But it's this idea of the future is uncertain. And whenever there's uncertainty in the equation, you have to take more of a probabilistic approach rather than a deterministic one. And it really becomes about managing risk around how much confidence can we or how much risk can we live with um, in terms of projecting a, you know, a completion date or things like that. So for sure, I mean, I think, I think it is, you know, management and the, you know, executives that, that need to understand this stuff. And I think, to be honest with you, they're used to managing risk from a probabilistic perspective, whether they know it or not, they're used to doing it. I mean, that's, that's pretty much their job. Yeah. Dan, I also wanted to talk a little bit about Lean Agile US. So um, you're the founder of this conference, right? That's now in its third year. Is that correct? In Fort Lauderdale? S- second year. Um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm more of a co-founder. Uh, Ultimate Software that I mentioned earlier. Um, Ultimate Software has really taken the lead in terms of, of putting that, that conference on, on the map. It's, it's really kind of more their, um, their brainchild. But I've been, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with them. Um, with the conference from, from the beginning. So I'm, yes, I'm, I'm a co-organizer. It is in our second year. You guys still have time to register. The, the conference itself is February 26th and 27th in Fort Lauderdale. So those of you who are, are suffering through one of the worst cold, cold spells in recent memory, um, feel free to get on a plane and come down to Fort Lauderdale. It's going to be sunny and 70 something down here tomorrow or something like that. So um, I think some of the country, most of the country is going to be below zero tomorrow, but uh, it's a good excuse to to come down and, and get a little sun and, you know, hey, hopefully learn a little something as well. Am I allowed to say it's an amazing lineup if I'm part of it? <laughs> <laughs> you are, because you, you are what makes it makes it amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not sure. Um, we're, 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 I mean, any help that we can do to get the word out, but our motivation for doing the conference is so many times the, the speaker lineup that we have, you know, the, the, the Colleen's of the world and the Joshua Karyovsky's of the world and the, the whomever's of the world. Um, so many times you can only get access to those people if you go to kind of the, the, the bigger conferences um, around the country. And our goal with Lean Agile US was to make these speakers much more accessible you know, at, at local venues and at local conference pricing. So, you know, instead of spending $2,000 to go to some conference, you can come and spend a, a few hundred dollars and come to our conference and get what I think is probably the best speaker lineup that you'll see all year, as far as I'm concerned, well, with the exception maybe of Mile High Agile, of course, right? Um, so. <laughs> no, it's a great lineup. I'm flattered to be a part of it. And it, it really is an impressive group of people that you've pulled together for for these two days. I think every time I go back to the site, I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that person was on there. Or this person was on there. So you've done a great job of getting a lot of really good talent there to speak. For anyone who is interested in coming to South Florida uh, to the Lean Agile US conference at the end of February, please see the show notes for a special discount code um, that hopefully makes it a little bit more accessible for you guys to get down here. That's wonderful. Thank you, Dan. So so we're, we're coming up on time. 
so we've got that going. You've got your book going. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they if they want to swap stories, pick your brain, um, invite you to speak? So um, the website is actionableagile.com. Actionableagile, all one word, dot, dot com. My email address, I'm assuming this will be on the website too, but my email address is daniel at actionableagile.com. You can find me on Twitter too. Um, I'm usually picking a fight or two on, on Twitter. Actually, maybe not that bad, but uh, happy to connect with, with anybody who's interested in, in learning a little bit more about this stuff. Wonderful. Well, thank you again um, to our guest, Daniel Vacanti, and to you all, our listening audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review, a rating, or leave comments on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice. It really helps others find us and find our content. If this is your first time tuning in, definitely consider subscribing to our podcast so you don't miss any of our future guests. If you'd like to join the discussion and share your stories around why size doesn't matter, please join the coalition.agileuprising.com. And finally, support from listeners like you helps us cover our hosting and production costs. So see the show notes for how um, you can become a patron of the Agile Uprising podcast. Thank you, Andy. And thank you, Dan. Thanks very much for the invitation to be here, guys. I really, really enjoyed it. And thanks thanks to all the listeners, all of you guys out there who are listening uh, for the support of this, this wonderful podcast. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Thank you too, Colleen, for hosting it. So until next time, uh, this is the Agile Uprising podcast signing off. Mm-hmm.